My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. For today's episode, we're going to depart from our Nauvoo story a bit to cover another important event that took place at the same time, though it was on the other side of the world. To start off, imagine, if you will, that science finally figures out that flux capacitor, and you can hop into a time machine and head back to the year 1841. Where would you go first, and what would you see? Maybe I can make a few recommendations. Perhaps you'd go to New York City to Scudder's American Museum. This museum has been around for just over 30 years at this point, and it's filled with stuffed animals. There is an American bison, an 18-foot yellow snake from South America, who knows where, a lamb with two heads, wax figures, and pieces from all over the world. If you're like me and that sounds just barely interesting, you aren't alone. Nobody really visited this museum. When Alex de Tocqueville visited the museum, he recorded in his journal that he laughed like the blessed to see it. So why would we go there? Well, during the months of 1841, a man named P.T. Barnum walked into the failing museum and bought it, hoping he could make it into something grand. It would eventually become Barnum's American Museum before hosting his first circus. But if that doesn't catch your interest in 1841... Maybe you'd want to sit in with the Supreme Court. In early March, they'd rule in favor of the fleeing Africans who'd seized control of the ship they were on after they'd been taken into slavery. If you don't know the story, Africans had been captured in the area of Sierra Leone by the Spanish and were illegally being sold into Cuba in slavery. The Africans, however, broke out of their shackles and took over the ship. They killed the captain and others before washing ashore in New York City. Their story is captured in the book and movie Amistad, and is considered by many historians as the most important court case in terms of slavery in U.S. history. The Supreme Court in 1841 would grant the Africans their freedom. If that doesn't catch your interest, the fans of the TV series The Crown would probably want to be in Buckingham Palace in 1841 for the birth of King Edward VII. Not me, however. I'd skip all of that stuff. For me, I think it'd be fun to be in Jerusalem in 1841. If you were there on October 24th of that year, you'd find it was a Sunday morning in the Holy Land. We'd need to be there in the very early morning hours before the sun came up, just as the gates were opening to the city. Then we'd see a young American hurry out through the city gates carrying papers and a pencil. The young American would make his way to the Mount of Olives, and in the early Sunday morning hours, He'd make his way up the mount, collect all the large rectangular stones he could find, and begin the process of building an altar. This time machine would take you to today's object. Today's object is the Mormon altar on the Mount of Olives. So what is this Mormon altar, and more importantly, how did it come about? When one considers the Holy Land, You can't help but feel the majestic emotion that has motivated countless people throughout the centuries to journey to the desert town. Unfortunately, Jerusalem doesn't keep a visitor's log. Can you imagine the names that it might contain? Presidents, 
dictators, warlords, movie stars, and the millions of poor religious believers have wandered its dusty streets, soaking in the sights and analyzing their emotions. So we shouldn't be surprised that while the Mormons were working through 1841 to build up their city of Nauvoo, one Mormon was walking through the Holy Land, preparing his thoughts so that he could dedicate Palestine for the gathering of the Jews and others of Abraham's posterity. Now, we don't have the time to cover all of Orson Hyde's story in this podcast, but I'll give you a quick background just for context. Orson Hyde was a studious young man living in Kirtland, Ohio, working as a clerk when Mormon missionaries wandered through his town in the early 1830s. Orson considered the missionaries to be quite uneducated, but was impressed by their claims of a gold Bible. In time, Orson acquired a copy and read through it himself. After discussing it with his friend, Sidney Rigdon, Orson felt moved to join up with the Mormon movement and be baptized into their ranks. At that point, Orson felt motivated to serve within the early church and asked Joseph Smith what the Lord wanted from him. In 1831, Joseph Smith told Orson Hyde, quote, In due time thou shalt go to Jerusalem and prepare a way and greatly facilitate the gather of that people. End quote. What a prophecy! Orson would serve many missions in the U.S. and in 1835 would be called to be one of the first members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church. Now, throughout the Mormon Church's short history to this point, the Mormon leaders felt moved to begin the process of the gathering of Israel. Joseph Smith said that on April 3rd of 1836, Moses appeared to him and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple and that Moses committed unto them the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth. According to Joseph Smith, these keys allowed the children of Israel to begin gathering to their inherited land as commanded by the Lord in the last days. With the key now given, there was now one thing left to do, dedicate Palestine to their return. Well, we've covered in previous episodes the fallout in Kirtland, the Missouri-Mormon War, and the scattering of the Mormons to Nauvoo. All of this seemed to put the work of dedicating Palestine on the back burner. However, after the Mormons arrived in Nauvoo and things started to settle in, this again became a topic of interest. In the early months of 1840, Joseph Smith had called the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles on missions to Europe. Orson Hyde, however, was still in Nauvoo. His recovery from malaria, despite the healing blessing of Joseph Smith, was taking longer than the rest. So in March of 1840, Orson Hyde went to bed thinking about the work he'd been called to do when he said, a vision burst upon him where, in short, he saw the lands of Europe and the Middle East. He said he was taken from London to Amsterdam to Constantinople and finally to Jerusalem where he said the Spirit told him to travel unto those people and prepare them for their gathering. Orson recorded that this revelation lasted almost six hours. Orson Hyde would then share this experience with Joseph Smith and the Mormons in Nauvoo at their upcoming general conference. The Mormons voted to send Orson on his mission as requested by Joseph Smith, but to have him go all the way to Jerusalem and dedicate that land for the return of the Jews as prophesied in scriptures. They also voted that John Page accompany Orson on this mission. So on October 15, 1840, they left Nauvoo for Jerusalem. Now, let me pause the story here for a minute. For our purposes, we should note that as we mentioned in episode 9, Mormon missionaries generally travel in pairs. So as is the case, Elder John Page, also of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was assigned to accompany Orson on his trip to Palestine. However, Elder John Page would never make the trip. 
John Page and Orson Hyde would separate to make their way to the East Coast on their own and plan to meet up there before crossing the ocean. This was done as Mormon missionaries didn't have purse or script and relied on other Mormons or honest people to provide food and shelter in their route. John Page, however, would get carried away preaching along the way and not make it to New York City as was planned. Orson was destined to make the trip on his own while John Page would wander among the states, avoiding the mission call and eventually leaving the church. Waiting on John Page in New York City was apparently a very frustrating thing for Orson Hyde. He would open one day a copy of the Nauvoo newspaper, The Times and Seasons, and see a note from the prophet chastising both he and John Page for delaying the mission and encouraging them to be off to Jerusalem. Obviously, this was on John Page for not showing up, but I can't imagine Orson's feelings here. Chastised, publicly, in the paper, by the Mormon prophet. It's amazing. So, in February of 1841, Orson Hyde would finally board a vessel and head for London. Now, we don't have time in this episode to cover all the things that Orson Hyde encountered on his journey, but let me highlight the route and touch on a few events. Orson Hyde would arrive in London in time to attend the momentous conference in Manchester in June of 1841. After the conference, Orson labored to convince anyone else to accompany him on his mission, but nobody would go. So, He remained in London for a while, attempting to meet with Jewish leaders and rabbis on his own before leaving. During that time, he worked on his German, and he even released the very first foreign language tract in Mormon church history, called A Cry in the Wilderness. Pausing the story again, I almost based the object of this episode on the first foreign language tract, as Orson would hand them out along the way to Palestine. However, it just barely missed the cut as the dedication of the Holy Land is fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So, back to the story. Orson would then travel by land to Amsterdam, proselytize there, leave and work his way through Germany, travel by boat down the Danube River, and thereby arrive at the Black Sea where he sailed to Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. From there, he only had a little bit of food and decided to sail to Lebanon. Now, this trip was only to take about four days. However, disaster struck as they had very little wind while at sea. Orson would record in his journal how they quickly ran out of food and were forced to stop and search the shores of the deserted islands en route to find snails living in the rocks as sustenance. Orson assumed he was going to die, and when he arrived in Lebanon, he didn't even have the strength to get up and walk ashore. From there, he would hire an armed guard to escort him by land to Jerusalem, as it was such a dangerous route for foreigners. Finally, on October 21st, 1841, he arrived in Jerusalem, a walled city with only four entrances. Now, the Ottoman Empire didn't really take care of Jerusalem, and with all the unexplored discoveries still to be had in the world, Jerusalem was just a dusty spot on the map. The roads around and through Jerusalem wouldn't even get paved until the 1870s. When Orson arrived, he fell in with the local Christian missionaries that had been living and proselyting in Jerusalem for years with almost no success. Walking through the tiny streets, Orson Hyde was immediately shocked at the poverty of the sacred city. The population at the time was just under 20,000 people, and just fewer than 7,000 of those were Jews. A staggeringly small number, when one considers that today there are just under 900,000 people in Jerusalem, and half a million of those are Jews. So, we've now finally arrived at our object. Orson would take a couple of days to soak up the feelings of the city where Christ walked, preached, and healed. 
He would collect his thoughts and meet with local rabbis and Christian leaders to tell them his story. In the end, on October 24, 1841, Orson would leave in the early pre-dawn hours on a Sunday morning, just as the city gates swung open. He'd make his way up the Mount of Olives and finally collect stones, stack them, and build an altar. At this point, Orson Hyde would dedicate Jerusalem to be the home of the gathering of the Jews and the children of Abraham. Now, we won't be covering the entire prayer in this episode, but one thing that does stick out is just as Cyrus of old had been the catalyst of returning the Jews to their homelands, Orson knew it would take a world power to do that again. Jerusalem at the time was in the hands of the Ottoman Empire. Orson, in the dedicatory prayer, would prophesy that England would free them, and that's exactly what happened after World War I. Now, mission complete. Orson would begin the long trek back to Nauvoo, Illinois. He wouldn't take the same route on the way home. Orson Hyde would head south from Jerusalem to Cairo, where he would then sail to Italy. This, however, was a bad choice, as the ship would have a breakout of diseases and he would be quarantined on the ship for months at a time. During this time of quarantine, Orson would write letters back to Parley P. Pratt, who was president of the Europe mission. In his letters, he would detail to the church all the stories and things that he had gone through and included the dedicatory prayer over Palestine. Parley would have those letters immediately printed into a book and sent back to Nauvoo. The book would be printed and circulated amongst the Mormons in America before Orson would arrive home. When Orson finally arrived in Nauvoo, he came home to his wife and two daughters in the winter months after being gone just a few months under three years and having traveled over 17,500 miles round trip. Now, how can you see the Mormon altar on the Mount of Olives today? You can't. It was destroyed sometime after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Mormon scholars, however, believe that as his journal explained that he traveled through the Garden of Gethsemane and that he didn't make it all the way to the very top of the Mount of Olives, they have a general idea of the location. But what does the Mormon church have in Jerusalem to commemorate this historic occasion? Over the next 100 years, dozens of Mormon apostles and prophets would make their way to the Holy Land to immerse themselves in the Holy City. The Mormon Church would even institute a foreign exchange program where young Jews and Arabs from Jerusalem could travel to the United States to study at the Mormon-owned school Brigham Young University in Utah. With the Mormon Church having such a growing presence in the Holy Land and knowing the story of Orson Hyde, in 1979, the then mayor of Jerusalem, a man named Teddy Colick, contacted the Mormon Church to gauge the church's interest in developing a five-acre property on the Mount of Olives. As part of the pitch, the mayor even recommended they name the property after Orson Hyde. The Mormon prophet in 1979 was a man named Spencer W. Kimball, who would take the offer to the church leadership. They would bring it up among the Mormons who would immediately donate the funds to purchase the land. So if you travel to Jerusalem today, you can climb the Mount of Olives and there find the Orson Hyde Gardens, dedicated to Orson Hyde and his mission to dedicate the lands. Now, what impact did Orson Hyde's Mormon altar, dedicatory prayer, and mission have on the Mormon church then and today? When Orson returned to Nauvoo, the Mormons were thrilled with their role in the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of the gathering of Zion. Starting in the 1840s, a huge migration of Jews would begin back to the Holy Land. Escalated after the English took Jerusalem in World War I and returned it to the Jews as prophesied in Orson's dedicatory prayer. Going forward, the Mormon Church would dedicate all new countries for the preaching of the gospel. 
The gathering of the Jews would become an article of faith, and Orson's actions will lead to the creation of the Jerusalem Center, an object coming up in a future podcast episode. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode in History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Number 29, the Mormon Altar on the Mount of Olives. As always, if you have questions or comments regarding this podcast, please reach out to me directly at joehomc, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And as always, my selfish plug, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes and share it on social media. Thanks again for listening.